Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. I'm Austin Meek with Waco Business News, and you're listening to Downtown Depot, where we track the ins and outs of Waco Business. My guest today is Sol Bautista, Director of Professional Development and Community Outreach for Creative Waco. Sol talks about her education in Guadalajara, experiences she's had with the Latino community in Waco, and a new program that she's piloting for bilingual creatives to create a stronger sense of community pride and rewrite history in Central Texas. Our conversation, coming up after the business review. The bright idea. I'm CJ Jackson, and this is the business review. After successfully helping to lead the LED lighting revolution, transforming Cree from a startup to a global market leader, Chuck Swoboda knows what it takes to create and innovate. So I think people that want to be innovators or entrepreneurs, they really need to have a a mindset that allows them to do things that most of us are trained not to do. So they need to be comfortable taking risk. They need to be not afraid of failure. And they need to see problems as actually opportunities to do something different and better. Swoboda says that when it comes to innovation, people who are experts at managing are probably the least qualified to do something new and different. So what I always suggest to people is what you have to do is you have to look on the fringes. You actually want to look for what some organizations might call the misfits and start there. And that'll give you the best chance at building a team of success. It's really about starting with people instead of process. Too often we reward people that are good at signing up for a task and delivering the expected result. And in fact, we want our people that are willing to sign up for tasks that they might not be able to achieve and aren't afraid to go for it. And when they don't get there, they're not deterred. Instead, what they realize is, wow, I learned something I didn't know before. I want to try that again. You've got to make sure you have people that are comfortable with risk. They're unafraid of failure. Because if they can't take risk, you'll never get any innovation. The Business Review is a production of Livingston and McKay and the Handcammer School of Business at Baylor University. The Business Review can be heard every Thursday during Morning Edition and All Things Considered on KWBU. I'm now joined in studio by Sol Bautista. Sol is the Director of Professional Development and Community Outreach for Creative Waco. Welcome to Downtown Depot. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. I know you've been in Waco for about the last six months or so. What were you doing prior to coming to Central Texas? I was living in Austin I for the past five years. I was an educator for the first three and then made a transition to start my own therapy practice. I'm a psychologist and um, in Guadalajara is where I got my degree. Some of my professors reached out throughout the pandemic to say that they (laughs) remember some of the conversations we had about how I was very passionate about understanding change in a different way. So it was a huge honor that professors from when I graduated college reach out, and then I found the right people to make that transition. 
with that transition, I decided to get back into acting. And I went to a few plays. And Sharon Arteaga, the director of When You Clean a Stranger's Home, invited me to do my first film ever. And so that's what I was doing right before. Was that in Austin or that was Guadalajara? (laughs) In Austin. Okay, cool. Yeah. In your studies in psychology, you were identifying change and trying to understand it better. I would imagine that going through the pandemic really shifted a lot of your focus and idea about how impactful change can be. A hundred percent. I think that although I love all my students and I loved, uh, I think educators are really the greatest change makers that exist. The feelings that I had being a psychologist and like being in in the classroom is that there's so many variables that you really absolutely cannot control that it was getting very overwhelming for me as a human. (laughs) So the pandemic definitely was like, I I can't do this. Like, I can't do this to the kids. I can't keep doing this to myself. Um, I think that I need to serve or find a way to serve better my community with all of the things that I have learned from Hispanic families, from education in Title I schools in general, and, and definitely the impact on mental health that I don't think that many people have addressed enough for educators and children. Like that shift in dynamics um, of the kids being at home the whole time, it was incredible, like overwhelmingly incredible. So it, it really helped me, I guess, do the introspective work that I needed to do to be able to know that I needed to say bye. It was a really sad goodbye because um, I have been an educator for the past 10 years. And uh, it was the first school where they allowed me to put the Dia de los Niños together. And so the principal was like, like, but you started it. Like, you did this. So it was a very bittersweet. But she understood why I was making that decision. And, and I knew I needed to find a different way to serve where I felt more in integrity with my values as a therapist, as a community member, as an immigrant, as a woman. So... I made the move. (laughs) The terrific change that young people especially experience throughout COVID, you're normally in school eight hours a day and all of a sudden you're at home being forced to do online learning. Is that feeling that, let's say, an eighth grader experienced throughout COVID the same for a kid in Waco as it would have been in Guadalajara? Like, Are there totally translatable issues that young people are facing these days regardless of where they are? That is a... a fascinating question because I had to reach out to some of my friends that were in Guadalajara. I was like, I don't know, how's, what are you guys doing? Because I don't know what I'm doing. Um, And it's very, very different. In some ways, I think that because Mexico has more open spaces, if you you think about, um, I think it's 83% of the economy is floating economy. So there's street markets, street vendors, um, like street businesses. So the kids um, still had an opportunity to be outside because it was necessary. So the lockdown here, it definitely felt more like boxed people here. And then you learn that, right? Like I will have conversations with my students about what their living situation was. But then once you are like really in a, like on a screen, eight hours a day in a screen with them, and you see what's happening in their house and you see their life, Somewhere very, very hard to see, you know. 
I know that in Mexico that was like one of the biggest concerns that some of the kids just stopped attending because they, they were not able to anymore. So it was different, like the way that an eighth grader felt it. Uh, I think in Mexico there was still some freedom and here it really became like you're doing this. So I don't know. Yeah, different. <laughs> Impossible to put a number on it, of course, but as a whole, this pandemic gave people more time to reclaim for themselves. They weren't having to be in an office or at a school for eight hours a day. Do you think that on net, COVID was a positive or a negative for artistic creation and creativity? You know, I think that especially when you have a creative mind, um, there's definitely an entire group of artists that started doing a lot of stuff online, right? Like, I actually, that was one of the first things that I connected with my friends in Guadalajara. I was like, every play that you're going to be broadcasting, please let me show it to my students. So I was doing street theater with the, like, we were watching all of the art possible that we could have. But since my partner at the time and some of his friends were musicians, um, that they had just gotten like the okay for their first uh, South by Southwest and or they were starting like a big, big chapter when everything shut down, the depression and the, the cutoff of the creative outlets of being in venues and having a different type of emotional feedback, it definitely caused like a lot of a lot of really sad scenarios. Because I think that when you are more in the sculpture, painting, even the theater, right? Like it's, it's body work expression that even though you do get feedback from an audience, is internal, like it, it comes from within. But when you're a musician that specifically produces music for live, for, for live uh, venues, if you don't have the venue and if you don't have the aliveness of the people, it, it hinders the, the juices of the creative flows. So I think that there were people that were able to adapt their creations and some creative minds that got really sad. Um, I, unfortunately, this last year, I have lost like four friends to suicide and all four of them were very, very creative. So it, it's uh, when I th when I think about it, it's like four is a huge number in one year, you know, like it's it's insane to think about. And so it's definitely how you pivot that solitude, you know, because I think being alone and feeling alone is very different. And especially for artistic types, this shows how important having structure is. <laughs> And when you can get off of that calendar, it's easy for things to go downhill. And that's part of the importance of having organizations like Creative Waco that provide a safe space for artists, provide programming, provide that community that they need. And you were brought to Waco about six months ago, started working with Creative. I'm sure that there was a lot of cajoling that was required <laughs> to get you here to Waco. Talk a little bit about the process of luring you here and what your first half year in the role's been like. So really quickly, because it's important, when I mentioned the film in the beginning, um, I was really not curious about coming to Waco. Don't hate me. Um, but the director was having to pick up an award in L.A., and we were nominated for a few awards for the with the film festival here. So she's like, would you be interested in like going and doing the Q&A and doing like all the things? And I was like, okay. It's a huge honor to be part of that project. Sharon Arteaga is incredible, and it's a project that is done for 99% of the film is women. There's only 
a small participation of a gentleman as an actor. But and what was the name of the film? When You Clean a Stranger's Home. Um, and so doing the Q&A, um, Elise, who's the part of the board of directors for Creative Waco, saw me. And she texted Fiona and she's like, I think you need to meet this person. And so Fiona came and joined us and we started a conversation. And all she told me is like, there's an incredible project that I'm thinking about and I think you'll be perfect for it. And it felt so like those types of like divine messages that start happening after the pandemic finished. Um, Because I had already left teaching, started my own thing. I was doing... It, the flow of my life was completely different than when I was in education. And so when she said that, I was like, oh, that's interesting. So I was toying with the idea of doing a workshop um, in Guadalajara. I was in Guadalajara when she called me. It's like we had the budget, we figure out the numbers, Air Collaborative is on board, and we want you to pilot the first one bilingual in the nation. And I was like, what? <laughs> so I had to do the whole application process, which was a little extensive, like they, they really make you do like a throw homework on why do you want that position. And um, and then I got the, the offer. And the more I learned while I was preparing for the interview, the more I learned about what Air Collaborative was, it just felt like it really, we landed very well together. When I was in high school, I had a very unstructured idea of something like this. And people told me I was crazy. So when they showed me the curriculum, I was like, this is, this is impossible. You're hearing from Sol Bautista. She's the Director of Professional Development and Community Outreach for Creative Waco, and now leading an exciting program called the Air Collaborative. This is the first program in the States uh, to have this presented in a bilingual fashion. Is that right? Tell us a little bit about the program and what you're going to be doing. Yes. Um, Air Collaborative is an initiative that is already in 17 other states up north, and it was created to bring people that usually don't play together to play together and address community needs. So Beth Flowers, who's a creator of this curriculum, uh, worked in politics for a long time, and, and, and doing policy, she saw some of the gaps that are not met because people in the community really is this like fear of like the greater things and like how do you do big stuff, you know? And so she detailed this three-day workshop on the, how do we get from birthing an idea, putting a timeline of 12 months and a budget of less than $10,000 and make it happen and see how it grows. And so in the other 17 states, there's been already different um initiatives that now are like alive and thriving and going great. Like what are some examples of those? There's one, um, I think it was in Virginia County, uh, that it it was like a farmer's market. So they, the community was facing a lot of um, talent fuge, like people are leaving and it's a very poor area. And so there was not, not sense of identity or community pride whatsoever. So they said, we need to get the youth involved in like, having like starting their own businesses. So they kind of revitalized this um, just area, painted, like put different tables and setups, and they started something like a farmer's market, but it was, it, it's a kid's market. So they will bring slime or like uh, scrunchies or like decorations or paintings or, 
And from that one, there's this boy who said, you know, like, I'm going to be a chef. So here are, like, my samplings of the first pastries I'm doing. Little did the community know that one of the women that started going to that market um, actually had the funds to start something a little bigger. And they decided to open a brick and mortar that was really going to do the collaboration of bringing the kids in. And they made him the sous chef. Uh, he's still learning and he's still training. I think that was like five years ago. So he's probably about to start going to uh, culinary school. But they really allowed him to be a big part of that project. And when you think about that, it just still gives me goosebumps because it was something that was definitely way, way less than $10,000. It really made the kids so excited to prepare their booth for the market and make the price tags and like having like this whole full experience of learning with their parents because their children are going to be selling stuff by themselves. So it became a very holistic piece of truly community building. And once you're there, which something that was a cheap project, the, the beauty of it really sparked that into this woman that was like, you know, like we actually do have the funds. We belong to this community and we were never invested in the community. So from this idea that had $10,000 for a budget, a family that had endless amounts of money to create the project that they wanted, brought in people to really bring an asset that now is a restaurant that a lot of people visit because they truly built it from that, from the community with farmers from there. Like everything is like a farm to table thing. So like seeing or thinking of that with already having those experiences it was just like mind blowing. It was a, it was impossible to say no, you know. <laughs> it's hard to give an entire city a makeover. <laughs> it's easy to give a makeover to one block or to one lot. And that's something that I think about all the time is just incremental development. How can we slowly but surely make this one block better? Then it's this one street better, then it's this one community better, then it's this one whole city better. And what you're attempting to do with Air Collaborative certainly has the upside of creating that. So practically, taking this Air Collaborative idea from a national level, we've had wonderful examples of it working in Virginia, to bringing it here to Central Texas and in Waco. Tell us a little bit about your designs. So we had the first um, the first cohort in English, which was actually the first one they ever did in person again after COVID. And um, it was a beautiful experience. The people that did sign up for the workshop really were from very different walks of life. I met some of like my goals, what I have with having the representation of the town, which is Caucasian people, Latino people, and black people. And I think that seeing that in the tables of them, people from Waco, really having conversations about like, oh, if you live in this certain area of town, maybe you don't see Mexicans very often. You know, If you live in this certain area of town, you don't understand the problematics that this other area of town has. And so seeing like really the, the thing happening, the magic really happening was beautiful. Three projects came out of that and it's in the process. We're already in the timeline, right? Like of the year. And I'm really excited to see where that goes. Um, last week we had also the first monolingual Spanish only cohort ever piloted in the nation. Translating the materials felt very beautiful because it's like when I speak about like language, 
there is a different part of my identity that comes alive when I'm doing things in Spanish. So really grabbing this curriculum that I had already learned, I had already put in practice, I had already internalized and given talks on, to put it in Spanish, it was beautiful. And, and it made it so much more meaningful. So I really think that now I do have the two elements that we needed to hopefully have a very successful bilingual cohort. I think that just the brainstorming of that, when you think about it, if I only spoke Spanish and you only spoke English, we will need an interpreter. Why an interpreter, not a translator? Because the interpreter re really needs to know how to um, translate the cultural cues and the nuances that a message that I'm sending can portray to you, right? Like when you think about the UN, the UN doesn't have translators, has interpreters, and it's a very high position because you can start a war, you know? Like if you translate something wrong in that level, which is conversational, it, it's a massive responsibility. So I really want that, like I am really looking forward to that of monolingual English speakers to really give in themselves the time and the the grace of hearing from people that are monolingual Spanish speakers and to see that there is like the human experience is a common denominator. That's an interesting distinction between a translator and an interpreter. And if you go visit any of our state parks here in Texas, they don't have guides who lead you around. They're called interpreters because they're there to interpret the history of the indigenous peoples, the history of the flora and fauna that are around. And I wonder if when you were taking this curriculum from English and having to translate it into Spanish, were there any things that were difficult to interpret? You know, because it's, um, um, it's something that it feels very much like community psychology. It didn't felt as difficult. I think that the the core value of the curriculum, which is uh, design thinking, it's very um, humanistic in a way. You know, you're having to the the overall is you're having to sit down with people that you potentially have a lot of biases against, and you're having to to listen. You know, like actively listen, and then build for the conversation. So. It didn't feel as challenging to, to make that, that translation. Here we are in the middle of Hispanic Heritage Month, and there's a lot of community programming toward the end of the month with this Dia de los Muertos festival. As someone who is Mexican from Guadalajara and now been living in the States for a while, what are your feelings on the Hispanic community in Waco, and is there anything that surprises you about this community? You know, I happened to stumble um, the Hispanic Chamber, and uh, it. I have been very impressed with the work that they're doing. However, I was just in a panel as well at Lalos with a group of people, uh, of women, and we were all of Mexican roots, but we talked about how some of them had lost their English, their health lost their Spanish, and how... Um, the struggles that they have lived being in Waco. So it was a really interesting layer of depth for me to understand that yes, like being Mexican versus being Hispanic and growing up here. And there's some of them that identify as Hispanic. 
and some that identify as Latino and some that identify as Chicanas and some as Tex-Mex. And all of those distinctions are very important, specifically between Hispanic and Latino. So really getting into those conversations, it was very, it was very enlightening that, that it's happening here already. I feel there's really cool things happening in all the different ends. The beauty will be how to weave them together because I think there's a lot of similar experiences that still stay separated, you know? I think the more we are able to share those stories, like the people that went to that talk really gave us incredible feedback on being honest. And so it's been really interesting to see the, the Hispanic community here. As a well-meaning gringo like myself, <laughs> I didn't know there was a difference between Hispanic and Latino. And so it's good to talk to people like you and understand how many depths of this culture is here because I particularly think about Waco in terms of the downtown district where I live, District 4, and it, last census data I saw, equally split, 33% Latino or Hispanic, mm-hmm. 33% Caucasian, 33% Black. This is like truly a mixed culture, a mezcla, if you will. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Working on my Spanish before here. Um, there's there's so many wonderful things that the Latino community provides here in Waco, and one of them is going to be this beautiful Dia de los Muertos festival at the end of the month. That'll be incredible. If people who are listening to this show want to know more about the Air Collaborative, and possibly they're that person in Virginia who has <laughs> the pockets and they want to see this thing expand, how can the community participate in this? Creative Waco has all the information on the website, creativewaco.org, and definitely reaching out to 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 the team. Um, I think that we are right at the perfect timing of being more involved in this whole process. I would love feedback. I would love comments, suggestions, people that I should talk to, different areas in the community that I should reach. So visiting creativewaco.org and reaching out. Sol Bautista is the Director of Professional Development and Community Outreach for Creative Waco and is now leading the first bilingual air collaborative in across the country and it's just an honor to have you in Waco and for you to be leading this program thank you so much for sharing your story on Downtown Depot thank you so much for having me it's been a pleasure thanks again to Sol Bautista of Creative Waco and the Air Collaborative and you for tuning into episode 137 of Downtown Depot here on Waco Public Radio you can find me in between episodes on Instagram and Facebook at Waco Business News And tune in on the first Friday of November for another conversation with another small business owner, civic leader, or engaged citizen sparking Waco's revitalization. I'm Austin Meek, and you've been listening to Downtown Depot, where we track the ins and outs of Waco business.